This is Anne Fremantle introducing another of WNYC's PEN portraits, P-E-N. What is PEN, P-E-N? PEN is an independent world association of writers. The initials P-E-N stand for poets, playwrights, essayists, editors, novelists, and by implication of the initials for all writers. PEN was founded in 1921 in London by John Galsworthy, who became its first international president. American PEN was founded in 1922 with Booth Tarkington as its first president. Among other presidents of American PEN were Robert Frost, Dorothy Thompson, Marshall Schutt, and Leon Edel. The present president of International PEN is the old novelist, V.S. Pritchett. The present president of American PEN is the young novelist, Jerzy Kosinski. PEN has over 80 centers in 60 countries of Europe, North and South America, Asia and Africa. World membership is around 10,000. American PEN, which has its headquarters in New York but draws its members from all over the United States, has 1,500 members. Membership is by invitation of the Membership Committee, extended to published writers of demonstrative accomplishment. What is PEN for? What does PEN do? PEN exists to promote worldwide friendship and intellectual cooperation among men and women of letters. PEN is a purely literary association, working in a practical way on all matters of concern to writers generally better protection of literary copyrights, better deals for translators, workshops for beginning writers in underprivileged areas, lectures and receptions for foreign authors coming here. PEN has no politics, but it is against the imprisonment of writers for political reasons, and PEN members in the PEN Charter pledge themselves, quote, to oppose any form of suppression of freedom of expression in the country and community to which they belong. PEN is therefore against all censorship of the written word. Talking with each other today on WNYC Radio under the auspices of PEN, P-E-N, are Madeleine Lengel, novelist, essayist, and children's writer, and Dr. Barry Wood. Madeleine Lengel's most recent book is The Summer of the Great Grandmother, published by Farrah Strauss and Giroux, an account of the last summer of her own mother, aged over 90. Madeleine Lengel has written over 19 books, and one, A Wrinkle in Time, a juvenile, won the Caldicott Award and is still a bestseller in the field. Recently, she spoke from the cathedral, or in the cathedral, from the pulpit in St. John the Divine, one of the first women to do so. The Reverend Dr. Wood is an internist and a psychiatrist at Roosevelt Hospital and an Episcopal priest. He has worked intensively with the dying and has written about them. His interpersonal aspects of the care of dying patients will be published shortly by the American Journal of Psychoanalysis. He has made many tapes for medical students on the subject of the dying and for the general public and has been on TV on such programs as Look Up and Live. Madeleine Lengel, novelist and essayist, author of the many books and the most recent The Summer of the Great Grandmother, and Dr. Barry Wood, of Roosevelt Hospital, internist and Episcopal priest, will discuss, can we face death? Can we, Miss Langham? Whether or not we can, we have to. <laughs> That's the first thing, I think, yes. And? I think uh, it's possible not to. But for me, not to face death, I think, means that we have not faced an aspect of living and an aspect of growing and if we don't face death, I believe that we will be much poorer people uh, as individuals and as families. Well, not to face death is, in a sense, to refuse to face life. Because you can't live 
unless you accept the fact that this life has a span. It's going to end. So you don't want to misuse any of it. Exactly. And also, obviously, there would be no possible uh, value in life if it didn't have an end. I mean, it'd be like a cheque without a date on it, which no one can cash. Isn't that right? I would certainly say there's a certain preciousness about life then. There was a patient on one of the wards in medicine who uh, was terminally ill, and when he was able to overcome his denial of his death and his anger about his death, he was then able to see his value as a human being on that ward at that time with other patients. And I suspect it was a time when he finally came to see that he was a worthwhile person, because death was part of his life, and it was then that he began to live. But he couldn't have done it, could he, unless he, first of all, had gone through the anger, the denial, and the rejection. That has to be gone through first. Oh, absolutely. There's no way out of it. I mean, the, the feelings we have around death are uh, multitudinous and varied and contradictory. And I think unless we are able to resolve or accept or acknowledge, I think acknowledge is a better word, the contradiction, that... Um, we will be missing something, because in contradiction, in acknowledging our contradiction, I think is life, and my life. Yes, my life is based on paradox. But I get upset at people who think that we ought not to be afraid of death, that when somebody young dies, we ought not to be angry. Oh. <laughs> uh, I am afraid of death. I think everybody is. It's, at the least, it's going to be different. I think one of the problems with physicians is that they are not aware at, of their own anger about death. And they are not aware of the fact that every patient is going to tell every physician, ultimately, you have failed. And you will fail. <laughs> and most doctors don't like to fail. And therefore, they avoid the subject and pretend that death either doesn't exist or disappear from the scene when a patient is dying. This summer, I got involved with a 40-ish, 50-ish year old woman who was dying of a brain tumor and her physician felt that he had failed and he abandoned her. Yep. And she was left dying with only a few friends and I was not a close friend, I was brought in by another friend. But it was an ugly death and people mm -hmm. didn't want to look at it because, again, this might happen to me. If I don't look at it, it won't happen. I think part of the problem with the abandonment is that most of the time people don't think about bringing someone else in. Uh, that any physician or any priest or any person should, should be able at any point to face death or be with a dying person, I think is a pretty uh, huge order. I know that I can't. I know there are times when I can be with death and be with dying people and face my own death, and there are times when I just can't, and I had to recognize that in myself. People would come to me and say, you must see someone today, and I say, I just can't today. But I did find out who could, and most of the time we are not trained as people to see ourselves in a community of people. And if we're in a community, we might be able to see who could handle what aspect of this death at this moment. I think one of the most beautiful things of your book is the, the feeling of community not only the community of your family, but the community of your family who had died that began, in a sense, feeding you and supporting you so that you didn't have to be at the center all the time. Did you feel this at the time? Oh, absolutely. I couldn't have survived it. Uh, I don't think I could have kept my mother at home if I had had to be in the center. Mm -hmm. But I was supported not only by my own family, but by the children of my friends, 
the friends of my children, rather, <laughs> who uh, were helping take care of my mother. And these were just high school, ordinary high school kids. And most of them had known her all her life because this was a, a little village. And they were determined that grandmother die at home. And they gave her a kind of, of nursing that she couldn't have had in a hospital. She didn't need machines, she just need, needed people. Mm -hmm. But these kids were not only taking care of my mother, they were supporting me. Absolutely. I remember when you, sort of, when you made your move to the tower to be able to stay yes. there instead of being uh, right over her. Where I could hear everything. Where you could hear and she could hear All everything. All night and <sighs> therefore I didn't sleep, yes. That this move, we need that to be able to make that kind of move. And I think that unless there is the community, what we do is we move the person who's dying. Yes. Uh, because we can't face the fact that we need to move out of the picture. And this is very, very difficult. Part of the problem is that, that for many people in America today, they do not live in community. They well, somebody said, who else could afford this kind of care for their mother? This costs less than a nursing home right. would have cost. And I'm convinced that in most neighborhoods, you can find high school kids who are much more compassionate about death and dying than the, those who are perhaps a little closer to it. I find that's true about high school children, partly because adolescence is a time when one's sense of self begins to center, and the adolescent, more than anyone else, is most consciously aware of their bodies and the importance yes. of their bodies. And death is both frightening, but they're able to approach a person who is dying in a body in a, in a, with a kind of honesty and care that you wouldn't find elsewhere. And they can approach the person because they're not in the least involved with the cause. Mm -hmm. I meet so many people who get involved with the cause because that's easy. You don't have to, be, you don't have to come in contact with the people who make up the cause. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most wonderful things about your book is the way the children, uh, even the quite young children, um, accept death, as, as um, Dr. Wood says, as part of life. And uh, this, this uh, handing down of, of uh, the feeling of life from one generation to another is quite extraordinary. I think when your mo mother actually dies in, in your son's arms is absolutely so glorious uh, that it must have been happy rather than sad. It was an absolutely glorious end to an extremely painful summer. Exactly. I, I don't minimize any of the pain, but I'm so grateful for that summer. I'm grateful not only for the things I learned about dying, but for the things that I learned about a community, each one supporting the other. And also I think perhaps the most important was that I learned that I, I cannot do it myself. Things that perhaps you might consider selfish, like going away where I could sleep at night and not listen all night for mother, were essential for the good of the community as a whole, that no one person is indispensable. Absolutely. But do you think community may be coming back? Uh, we live quite a lot in Mexico, and in Mexico there's a great deal of community, among, especially among the poor. The, you know, the generations live together very much, and um, it seems to work. And even among the middle classes, they, the, the girls don't leave their families until they marry, and boys don't leave, you know, until they marry. That sort of thing is much more common in living. Do you think that, and it happened in your book so much that everybody was living uh, a, com a community life, do you think that could come back uh, as a as a way of life? I think there's a terrible need for it and that it is coming back. We do have a summer community with, a, with the family all together. But right here in New York, the, the block associations, we live on the Upper West Side. We have a block association where we begin to get to know our neighbors. Our building is the first tenant-organized co-op in the city. 
Mm -hmm. We are working together. We now have our, our fruit and vegetable co-op, which, which is becoming a common thing. We're not unique in our building. And you now, I mean, supposing someone died in your co-op, would you, would you feel you, you should try and help or be with them or something like that? I mean, yes, I think we're beginning to get to the point where if an emergency happens in the middle of the night, we all have four or five neighbors we would be free to call and say, come help me. I think part of this understanding of community, however, is not just adults, the, the children that were included. That in the book, the children at one point had a simplicity which enabled them to just be with your mother in a way that you didn't have at the time. And yes. you recognize this difference in the children and the, and the animals were it, able just to be there. And so much of this has to do with the way we are taught we must be in the center. We don't have to be in the center. It doesn't mean we cannot be in the center. Uh, I like to see it as a dance. Yes, I was just going to say. <laughs> exactly that, the same it's analogy. A uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great ballet, and places shift. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't, if, if one ballet dancer had to dance the entire evening, he'd drop of exhaustion at the right. end of it. Absolutely. And the children have a place in this, a very, very real place in this. Uh, very often children with the dying are shuttled aside, and this is, has tremendous effects on the children, terrible effects. It's had terrible effects on my life that I'm only just growing out of now. But when children are pushed away, they, one, are denied an opportunity for growth. This, this came up with your delighting in your son's, your not being there being an opportunity for his growth. Yes, because he was had just graduated from high school. This was a, a major thing for him to cope with the entire death because the rest of the family was out of the house at that mm -hmm. point. And it was a time when he could recognize his maturity and couldn't stuff it off because he was mature. He acted as a mature, loving human being, um, which is terribly important. We don't, we don't often how, think of children that way. How young do you think children should be faced with death? Well, our little ones that summer were one, not quite one, and not quite two. Yeah. And they still talk about their great-grandmother. They, they, they couldn't say great-grandmother, they called her Grocky. And uh, she's still an alive person in their lives because we never stopped talking about her. And very often when somebody dies, all of the friends and neighbors say, oh, we mustn't talk about it because that will upset them. But we continue to talk. I still talk about my mother. She's still an important part of my life. My daughter, who is now six, has taught both my wife and I more about normal grief than anyone else because we've had uh, guinea pigs and pigeons and mice and things like this that have died and she has learned she grieves normally easily freely and fully the most recent death in our family was of a guinea pig who was pregnant who died while being in labor the day after christmas when we were in maine we woke up to find her almost dead and after she died, I did a cesarean section on the guinea pig and was not able to resuscitate the babies. But the people who were with us in this house could see in her approach, her ability to cry, to love, to touch, to recognize the death. They said, she wouldn't let us run from it. She stayed with it. She wasn't afraid. She taught me something then, too. And this is, this is where it all is. You know, St. Augustine has right on so many things, and one of them was the only fact about our life is made when we are born, that we will die. Um, and to deprive a child of that fact at any point in their life, I think, um, is rather awful. Well, I know my little, <coughs> well, I have only two grandsons, but one of them said to me one day, um, he was only about six or five, he said, 
um, when I'm so-and-so age, whatever it was, 40 or something, you'll be dead, won't you? And I said, probably, Most, almost certainly. And he just accepted it completely. You know, I wouldn't be there. And, and he was, as I say, five or six at that age. And I thought that was so good and sensible and, you know, practical. And he just looked at me and said, well, by that time you'll be dead. So I said, yes, sure. So our children, too, taught us a great deal about how to go about grieving with death. It, it happened that we lost four of our closest friends and we were all in our 30s. And, and, and that statistically is a lot of death. Yeah. And uh, our children were the ones who, who helped me to cry. Our, our little boy who was three said, why aren't you crying about this? Do, do mummies cry? And I said, yes, just like anybody else. And he said, well, you ought to be crying, at which point I was, and it was a very good thing. Mm -hmm. And then he, we hugged, and it was out where it belonged, not, not hidden, not festering. One, one marvelous, uh, slightly more humorous thing, he, when he was a little bit older, he had two turtles. Well, first of all, it was the goldfish, and the goldfish died immediately. And we had a marvelous funeral. We took them the long length of the hall and gave them a burial at sea, flushing them down the toilet. But the turtles survived for about two years, and he grew very, very fond of them. He kissed them every night at bedtime. And when Elroy died, he got home from school, we had to tell him that Elroy had died, despite his efforts to save Elroy from soft shell. He went flinging off into his room, sobbed his head off, and came back and said, well, I'm glad I cried. I think I got it off my head, was his expression. But then came the question of the funeral. And Elroy couldn't have a burial at sea. He wasn't a fish. So he said, we're going to have to take Elroy to the country and bury him where he belongs. And this was in February. We weren't going to the country until June. I said, you know, Elroy will smell. And he said, well, Josephine's chemistry set has preservative. Put Elroy in preservative. Well, I'm not very good at chemistry, and, and I, I'm not a physician. So what I did was I froze Elroy. Mm -hmm. And it was just, a, you know, the, the refrigerator with a small amount of freezing right. space. And every time I defrosted, we get remarks about turtle soup tonight, Mom. But we froze Elroy. He kept him safely frozen until spring, took him up to the country, and, and buried him in the apple orchard. But this was simply out and faced and open. And after the funeral, everybody felt very fine about Elroy. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I like very much also that you have this feeling that as long as people are remembered and as long as there's a, there's a continuity, um, nobody is dead. Um, you, you, you have that all through the book, that, that, that people don't disappear as long as they're remembered. And um, I... I, well, I take exception to that. Do you? Yes, I do. Uh, this, this is an ancient Hebrew notion, and it was one of the methods that you can trace in the Old Testament for handling death. However, when someone is dead, they are really, truly dead. The life that they have in our memory is a life which we have of them, their own personal life as individually creative people for us has ceased. And that's a reality. That's an absolute reality. It's because of this reality that, and a recognition of this reality, I'm not going to get too far into theology, that resurrection is so important, and the doctrine of the resurrection is so important. It, it, resurrection does not deny the reality of death. It has nothing to do with life after death. But our death really is final. And the feelings we have about that finality ourselves and for other people are absolute feelings, and they're huge feelings. Um, yes, when, when somebody, when the people I have loved have, who have died, particularly the young ones, 
I have known that I will never know that person in that way ever again. That is gone. That's right. Now, do you remember in the book I used the analogy of, of the glasses and you're nearsighted enough to have it make sense. Yeah. I still feel that something else will be provided for that person to be through. Just as when either of us takes off our glasses, the world more or less vanishes. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and this makes sense only to a very nearsighted That's person. absolutely true. But the glasses are not doing the seeing. You are and I am. Mm -hmm. And if they're broken, we're really pretty lost. Mm -hmm. And the world we will see will be a different world without them. The world totally. We, and the totally. world we have with them is a different world. And this is not to deny that our perspective is limited and it's not also to deny there may be another perspective, which, as a matter of fact, I look forward joyously to seeing. However, I know that it will not be the perspective I now have. Well, I think that what I was thinking of was what you call the, the Hebrew notion, which um, I, I remember as a child liking very much when it says in the 112th Psalm, in memoria eterna erit justus, which in English is, the righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. And I think there's something about that uh, which is terribly important because, after all, a person like, well, just to say one's favorite poets or, or you know, the people one, one looks back to, even if they're not relatives, I mean, somebody whose who's poetry matters to one or something, is in our remembrance. That's true. And that is a form of life. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I can't ever think of, of um, Shakespeare as, as dead. I mean, not in, in the sense uh, of... of, of of course, we all know he died in whatever it was, 1601, whatever it was. <laughs> but um, I think there's something about this everlasting remembrance, which um, Miss Langer brought out very much in her book, that that, that kind of, of our participation is also a form of life. But all of that is going to go. The planet Earth is going to go. That, that memory is as ephemeral as our lives. But... I was thinking of this, as a matter of fact, on the, on the way down to this building, which I can never, ever find, so it gives me a lot of time to think, that uh, our memory and God's memory are totally different things. And when we ask memory eternal for people who have died that we love, we're not asking for our memory of them. We're asking for God's memory, which means that no matter what form they may be continuing in, what they have been here has, is not lost and will never be lost. Well, that's exactly what I was trying to get out of you, uh, because that's what I feel very strongly your book brings out. Yeah, now, the, you'd agree to that. I would agree to that, but, I, but there's a problem here, and I, the problem is, what about the people who never do anything, quote, significant, unquote? Now, there's I don't no believe that exists. Thing. I don't this, believe this. that's true. But the, and this is the problem that, that's faced when there may be no time for someone to remember, and this was faced during the exile which is why the text comes up, which is used in All Saints Day, that asks the question and sort of accounts. It says, but some there be which have no memorial. What happens to them? And they are, it is not because we remember, it's because God remembers. And I, that's the essential difference. Our memory is wonderful. And I think our memory is important because it is our life which we have added. Um, you know, Ms. Langle's book means something to me because there is something that I have connected to into it. It has not just been fed me. It is my connection with it. It is an active role that I play. In a sense, if we don't recognize our part in it, part of the, in, part of the enjoyment of remembrance is lost. 
It depends too much on the other person. The remembrance is ours. Also, we don't have any future if we don't have a memory of the past. Mm -hmm. there, there's an operation, now I, I was told by one of my children, where violently insane people who don't respond to any other method, there's a, it's not a lobotomy, there's an incision made, and all the violence is under control, but they have a memory span of 10 minutes. Now, it's not much who would you be, it's what would you be, you wouldn't be human, mm -hmm. and you would have no future. So our, our memories are, are part of our ability to move forwards. It's not something we sit back and wallow in, it's, it's a rock that enables us to spring into the future. Well, Augustine, to come back to him, um, said that God was in the memory, if you remember, having spent a lot of time looking for where he was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> said that if he existed, which um, he used to preface it rather carefully at that point in the Confessions, he said he was in the memory. And perhaps you'd agree that, that that's what Miss Langell is saying, in fact. Am I? Was that's tricky. Yes. Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't agree with that. I think it's, it's an earlier formulation of Augustine, which I think you would repudiate, partly because it makes God dependent on us. And the, the key is that that's not true, uh, but rather the reverse in a totally different way. But I think memory, our existing in time, our being in time, serves to bring life and death together, not make them opposites. Uh, a great senior clinician in my analytic school, Alexander Reed Martin, uh, has said it with a different pair, which might be helpful. He says, Love and hate are not opposites. The opposite of love or hate is indifference. That love and hate are a hyphen, and between them we live. That indifference is the opposite. So same too, I believe, with life and death. That I yes. think if we either live totally in life or totally in death, and many people live totally in death, there is something missing. We must live in life hyphen death, in that hyphen, What's on the other side of the equation? What would you say? I don't know. Well, I think the, the, the fact that indifference is the opposite is terribly important because indifference seems to me the most awful thing that can happen. A, a friend of mine who's in, in trouble with his marriage asked me if I were ever bored with my husband, to whom I've not been married 29 years. And I said, I've been furious at him. I've been angry. I've been so hurt I could die. But I've never, ever been bored. He said last night at bedtime, you know, you're absolutely impossible. I can get angrier at you, but I never have been bored with you. And yeah. it, being bored with life is a vicious form of dying. Maybe that's the opposite, boredom. Yeah. Life and death, the opposite of life is boredom. The opposite of death is boredom. It's in holding the two in, in creative conflict that we are living most. I mean, that's... Not bad. I'll work on it a little bit. <laughs> yes, I think to think further on that, too. <laughs> now, Dr. Wood, as a physician, can you give any comfort to the, the very natural, which we all agree, real fear of, of death? Isn't it really fear of dying, of the discomfort and no. of the pain? Excuse no? me. No. It is, it's fear of annihilation. It's fear of not being. Well, I have a story, which is that Professor Robert Neal at Union gave a course on death, and he handed out a sheet, which we all had checked, about fears of death, and there were about 25 categories. And I checked, I do not fear death, and handed it in. Well, as I have worked with dying patients, I now fear every one of the categories. <laughs> I fear annihilation, pain, being a burden, 
uh, being of difficulty, being of no use. I, I fear what's going to happen to my body. I fear, I fear the judgment of the dead. I fear everything among those two. And yes, as absolutely. I've gotten closer to it, I find that, yes, I fear that, mm -hmm, and that, and that. And that the first pretense of I do not fear is, was a mark of my inhumanity. Hmm. <laughs> well, we're coming to an end, and it seems to me that uh, the beautiful words that you quote so often in your book, Timor Mortis Conturbat Me, The Fear of Death Worries Me, um, come out very strongly. We are all terrified of death, and we can possibly face it. Well, I think the other thing that I quote implicitly in the book is Lady Julian of Norwich, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Because unless we can affirm that immediately after the Timor Mortis Conturbit May, then the fear is totally destructive instead of creative. I fear, and I say, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. That's a lovely ending. Thank you very much, uh, Miss Langell, and thank you very much, Dr. Barry Wood, for being with us on another of these pen portraits on WNYC. Um, the, the discussion was on, can we face death?